My name is Sanjeev Gupta and this is Socialism in the Time of Corona. In this podcast, I'm talking with people with deep experience in socialist and left politics, especially in the US. Our overarching question is, during this pandemic, how might we not only defend whatever gains we've made to this point, but actually advance them? As summer slips into fall, this first season of the podcast concludes with a conversation with Rachel Himes, an organizer with New York City DSA, who coordinated the chapter's Bernie campaign and worked on its recent successful campaigns for state, senate, and assembly. Himes is also active in the chapter's Defund NYPD campaign. And as if all that was not enough, Himes is beginning a PhD program in Columbia's Department of Art, History, and Archaeology. We spoke more than a month earlier, immediately after the New York City Council's budget vote. I asked Himes to assess the state of the movement in the city, differences between this summer's protests and earlier ones against the police, and the role socialists should play in the struggle. So let, let's just start with uh, an, uh, an update. Are we still in the period of like protests every day uh, in, in New York City? Is there still that kind of energy that, that you talked about a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, so a few weeks ago, I guess we're looking at, you know, from late May throughout the month of June, there were protests in the streets all over the city, uh, crossing the bridges between the boroughs, uh, occupying public spaces like parks and plazas almost every single day. And I think what was really amazing about that period was that many of these protests seemed to be largely spontaneous. Um, they weren't being called by sort of the established uh, nonprofit actors in the city. Uh, they were being uh, either sort of formed spontaneously by organizers no one had heard of before, or uh, eventually out of new groups that appeared to be growing out of these protests. And I sort of saw, you know, an amazing cystic. It said there was a period in which there were multiple protests in New York City almost every single day for a 30-day period. I think we're definitely seeing some of that uh, die off, which was very much to be expected. We couldn't keep up that momentum forever. Sure. We are seeing, I think, more targeted protests now, so protests that have, you know, specific demands um, rather than sort of our general expression of, of outrage, of anger, um, of, of fury at the murder of, of George Floyd and, and others like Tony McDade uh, and Breonna Taylor. So I think people are now beginning to think more strategically about what demands do we want to come out of these protests? Um, maybe, maybe how do they fit into a a longer-term strategy. Uh, something else that's also worth noting um, in terms of protest and direct action in New York, of course, is the occupation of, of City Hall, uh, which is, is usually called Abolition Park or Abolition Square. And that is still ongoing. It sort of uh, came up around the, the budget um, and you know, occupying the space where, although they aren't doing it now because of coronavirus, but where the city council members would typically meet to vote on the budget, um, you know, permanent physical uh, protest, mm. um, which, is, which is ongoing. Wow, that's that's great. Um, you know, 
at uh, a couple of weeks ago, what I remember is the the defund demand was, uh, you know, a uh, billion dollars. And I know some people were calling for uh, half of the budget, so closer to $3 billion. So where are we with, with that? Uh, you know, is there some identifiable demand that most uh, groups or protesters have converged on? Is there a response from the city to to that demand? Well, I think to take a more um, sort of macro look for a second, I actually think it's amazing that not just in New York City, but across the country, uh, there has been such unity around the demand that the police be defunded. It's very different than what we saw coming out of the last Black Lives Matter uprisings in 2014. I that was a different time. And I think, you know, many people were in a different place politically. It was the Obama presidency. Um, but I, we didn't see the same kind of unity behind any particular demand. What I think is so amazing about the defund NYPD demand is that it's an economic one. Um, it's one that recognizes that cities are spending an outsized amount of their budget on, on policing and on sort of punitive measures. And it recognizes that money could be reinvested in uh, social services and education and public housing. And so I think, I mean, I, I, it's sort of my, my thinking that um, this sort of bringing in an economic demand to, uh, to um, a racial justice movement, a movement for black lives really sort of represents how far we've come in, um, in sort of class consciousness, I think, in, mm. in the United States. Uh, and I, I wouldn't hesitate to say that this has at least something to do, like at least a little bit to do with Bernie Sanders. Um, but to look more specifically at New York, um, the demand to defund the NYPD. So the NYPD alone has a budget of around $6 billion, and that's just the police. So that's not the rest of the criminal um, infrastructure. It's not jails. It's not prisons, that's just the police's budget. Um, so salary, uh, equipment, overtime in particular. So um, very soon after the uh, protests began, we heard many groups in the city, uh, including DSA, including Vogel, uh, calling for the police to be defunded by $1 billion. And then what happened was that several council members, not a huge number, but some were responsive to that demand and made public statements um, committing themselves to defunding the police by that amount. And sort of, sort of in response, sort of, you know, wanting to keep pushing, wanting to not, you know, settle for something that it seemed at that time possible that we would win, uh, NYCDSA specifically upped the demand to, um, to $3 billion, mm. so asking half of the police's budget. Mm. And so that was the demand that NYCDSA in particular was organizing around up to the uh, city council budget vote, which was right at the end of June. And of course, they didn't give us uh, $3 billion. They didn't even really give us um, $1 billion. They did some, um, some finessing, some shuffling around. Um, and... Uh, you know, the long and short of it is the police haven't really been defunded um, at all and will continue to operate at, at essentially full capacity going mm. into this new fiscal year. Mm. And how how is, you know, DSA and, and all the other groups 
uh, what's the response to that? So now that, you know, it's, it's not worked, um, what's the, what are the next steps? Well, I think, you know, definitely we're still, we're still figuring it out, but I think there's a couple lessons to be learned here. First of all, I don't think there was a lot of surprise that we didn't get $3 billion. I don't even think there was surprise that we didn't get $1 billion. We had to cram an entire campaign uh, for, for this demand into what basically amounted to a month, the month of the George Floyd uprisings. And um, I think it, you know, it comes as no surprise that the city didn't feel like reactive to that. I mean, the city council members, um, you know, they received hundreds of, of thousands, I imagine, of calls and emails from people articulating this demand, and, and it wasn't enough. So I think, you know, we're in an important moment where we should certainly be um, agitating, be radicalizing around the failure of the city council in New York to meet that demand, to respond to their constituents. So I think it's a moment of, of you know, radicalization that should spur us to future organizing. But also, I think there are, you know, there are lessons to be learned here. Um, I would never, ever sort of denigrate or downplay the role that, you know, direct action, that protests and marches and mass mobilization have in our movement. I think it's a critical component of, um, of our strategy, uh, not just on this topic, but in general. But I think it's clear that we need to be looking for other ways to build durable power. Um, the city did not respond in the ways that we wanted to um, mobilization on its own or to sort of mass mobilization plus the phone calling and emailing we were doing council members. So we should be, you know, continuing to double down on showing up in the streets. We also need to look for other avenues to build power in. I think an exciting angle that um, I hope New York City explores, but also, I also hope other cities look to, is sort of thinking about the relationship um, between the preservation of New York uh, police jobs and the simultaneous um, layoff and devaluing of other kinds of work, and specifically municipal work. Uh, in New York City right now, um, the budget... Um, calls for some, I think, 22,000 municipal workers to be laid off. Um, and of course, this is a response to COVID. This is um, one of the sort of COVID austerity measures that New York City, along with many other cities, are taking in response to the economic toll that COVID um, took on, on the cities and on the city budget. But I think it will be really wise for us to raise the question, why, why are nurses being laid off? Why are teachers being laid off? Why are sanitation workers being laid off? And yet at the same time, New York City is still continuing to onboard another class of NYPD cadets in October. Hmm. So I think this um, could be an important area for us to move in, uh, particularly because we'll want to think, you know, who are our allies in this fight? And I think, um, our allies and opportunities to grow solidarity and grow in coalition are workers who are being devalued at the same time that the city budget um, is valuing uh, police and, and valuing policing. And is one of the reasons that uh, it's, uh, you know, it's keeping the the police off the table as far as layoffs, um, is is it the, the union sort of thing that so many of us are talking about these days? Yeah, I think, 
you know, one of the factors is certainly um, the, the police union. They're, they're very powerful in the city. Um, and not just this isn't true, just New York, where the union is the Policeman's Benevolent Association, but in other um, cities around the country, police unions exercise an outsized influence um, in politics. And of course, a lot of this um, takes place through um, uh, support of, of, of um, campaigning politicians through through donations and through money. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons why the New York City Police Department um, exerts such a powerful force over its elected officials. But, you know, I think, you know, another sort of, that with that aside, another challenge we have to overcome is, you know, we need to be really working hard to reframe what public safety looks in, in people's minds. I mean, there are certainly neighborhoods in New York where if you said to the residents there today, hey, tomorrow we're, we're, um, we're taking police out of your neighborhood, we're, we're defunding the police, that would be not met with support. There mm. are neighborhoods where people um, are, are relying on a police presence to maintain order, to maintain safety. So I think a huge part of our work here as we're fighting to defund the police is to work with people to imagine other forms of, of safety. Like what are the conditions that would make my community safe? And how can we meet those conditions in ways that guarantee true safety, true health and well-being, other than policing? So I, I don't think we're wise to sort of downplay the support that police ha actually do have um, amongst constituents uh, in this in this city, I think I'm sure that there are city council members who are also reacting to that kind of pressure, that kind of perceived pressure. Mm. You know, it's really interesting to to hear that because it's one of the things that, at least in in my sense of the uh, you know uh, some of the left um, coverage of this has. Uh, either uh, maybe it's unfair to say it's been downplayed, but it hasn't been emphasized as much. I think as um, uh, as you know the uh, the angle that the police are really ultimately sort of a destructive and uh, antisocial sort of force. Um, and in a large city like like New York, um, uh, I mean, I guess I don't find it hard to imagine that there are in fact parts of the city. Uh, where exactly what you're saying that people, uh, you know, perceive the need for uh, for police, um, and I'm and I'm even guessing that you're not you're not only talking about let's say, uh, you know, affluent or majority white neighborhoods. I mean, are you would would also some, uh, you know, uh, majority uh, sort of people of color neighborhoods also have constituents who would feel. Uh, a little, you know, uh, sort of ambivalent about the complete disappearance of the, the police? Yeah, I, I certainly think so. And I think, you know, part of the reason for this is that sort of through, um, through the sort of neoliberal sort of draining and um, devaluing of, uh, for instance, um, you know, sort of different kinds of sort of mental health services, um, services that would help and rehabilitate people suffering um, from substance abuse or addiction, um, services that would help house the homeless. In the absence of those uh, 
in the absence of those programs, the police are, you know, playing um, playing a role in this city. And I don't think the role they should be playing. I don't, I don't think any of us would feel that way. But, sure. you know, people want to be able to, to you know, make a call and, and sort of uh, diminish some of the, the dangers that they might encounter in their daily life. And I think this is something that, I mean, you see me sort of reaching for words here. This is something that's genuinely hard hard to grapple with. Yeah. Um, when we think about uh, communities where, you know, policing is playing a role. And I think, you know, like I said, what we have to do is um, help people imagine a world where police are not like the first responders in those situations. Um, and police are not the people we turn to when looking to address issues of, of safety, health and well-being. Yeah. And, and, you know, even imagine a world where you would just need to make fewer of those calls because, you know, there are uh, fewer people who are in, uh, you know, in conditions that uh, create sort of the, the basis for, uh, you know, anti, anti-social or violent sort of uh, crime. Um, uh, but, but yeah, in the short term, at least it is, it is something that, uh, you know, it's it's certainly one of the things that struck me as a difference between where I live, which is overall, uh, you know, relatively sort of certainly compared to the big cities, um, uh, relatively crime free, and and it's 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 very easy to imagine, uh, you know, the police basically uh, disappearing and. Um, uh, and there's still being, you know, relative, uh, you know, relative safety in the conventional sense. Um, uh, but it's, but, but yeah, it's, it's really good to hear you sort of um, say that that may not be the case everywhere. And that's something we, we need to deal with. Um, uh, you know, I, so just dialing back a little bit to, so, and this is something I've been trying to just kind of like put together in my own mind as, uh, you know, like you, I'm struck by how different this wave is compared to, uh, you know, even just a few years earlier. And, and in between, we've had the Sanders campaign and we've also had like all these skilled um, people coming out of, you know, Occupy, Black Lives Matter, just continuously building up experience. Um, and so in that sense, you know, yes, now there's an opportunity and it's it looks qualitatively uh, more advanced because underneath it, there's all this, uh, you know, accumulated experience and just the conditions are different. And yet the end point, we are still, we still come down to, okay, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, you, uh, you know, we, we fight city hall and we lose. Um, uh, and, and then we are back to thinking about, okay, so what, what more do we need to do to get, you know, these local, these city governments or state governments to respond? So, so yeah, tell me, tell me why, why I'm wrong to, to put it that way. Um, I mean, the question of, you know, what more can we do to win this, to win this fight is, is a really challenging one. Um, I think that one path forward is to look and see, like, who are the different stakeholders in this fight? Um, I'm thinking specifically right now um, 
about about workers and about labor and about the role labor can play in this battle. Um, I mean, if we think look to our um, history, if we look towards the civil rights movement, uh, we can see the enormous role that labor, um, organized labor and unions played um, in winning some some decisive civil rights victories. If we think about the example of the March on Washington, um, it was a march for jobs. There was, you know, immense union participation. I am thinking now about, you know, there are there are many teachers in um, in public schools who are speaking against the um, outrage that um, instead of their students who they they care for and they care about, instead of their students being resourced with social workers. Um, with nurses and counselors, um, police are, are once more filling that role. And so I think, you know, we'll, we'll, we've already seen um, teachers, teachers unions demanding that ties be cut between school departments and police departments. Mm. Um, we've even seen even more extremely, um, I think it's in LA, the teachers union, teachers union in LA, um, issuing a set of demands uh, and, you know, defunding the police is one of them. So there's the implicit um, threat of, of, of job action or strike if these demands are, are not met. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what comes of that. But I think, you know, we should think about, you know, what, who are the stakeholders in this fight and how can we work with them and, and grow and mobilize that power um, and I think, you know, there are other other places where that kind of strategic power can be mobilized. I, you know, beyond that, it's, it's sort of hard for me to think through what forms um, and what shape this campaign will take. It's um, it's definitely going to be a, a very long, long road. Um, and I think, you know, also will it will be well served to think about sources of police funding that don't just come from um, city budgets, but that come from um, private sources. So for instance, uh, in New York City, there's the New York City Police Foundation. So you know, one strategy we have is to identify who are the, um, who are the other players, um, who are these sort of you know, behind the scenes, um, millionaires and billionaires who are funding the police and, you know, for what, for what purposes, what reasons. So that's another, I think, avenue for, um, for organizing. Uh, and I think, um, no, I'll, I'll just leave it there. I think those are sort of two possible avenues for, for future steps towards this very, very massive goal. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's huge. You know, so, um, I, uh, I can't help noting that one thing you haven't mentioned is people running uh, for city council and other positions like that. Um, uh, is that just because it hasn't come up or you actually don't think there's much to that? No, I think that's an, I think that's an amazing um, and important strategy. <laughs> I hadn't mentioned it yet. I don't know why. It's, it's not far from my mind. Um, we've already seen uh, victories in that area. So for instance, um, in DC, 
uh, Denise Lewis George has has recently won a city council seat in Washington D.C. Um, on a platform of, of defunding the police. Mm. And similarly, we can see um, in, in Chicago, the Socialist Caucus of Aldermen and Chicago City Council um, are playing an extremely active role, not just in being you know, vocal advocates and educators for the defunding of the police, but you know, actively um, mobilizing the power of that Socialist Caucus to, to convince other, other city council members of this necessity. Uh, and I think we'll see something, I'm hoping that we'll see something similar in New York. What is exciting in New York right now is that many, many, I think maybe almost more than 30 of the currently appointed council members, um, the ones who just voted yes on a budget that did not defund the police in any substantial way, mm. um, 30 of those council members are, are term limited meaning that there will not, they will not be running for election. And so um, we will have in New York, hopefully an opportunity to fill at least some of those council seats with, with representatives who are supportive of the demand to defund the police and, and willing to um, agitate for it once in power. And I think you know, what'll be really important for those elected officials is instead of subverting, instead of redirecting, instead of tamping down the imagery, the imagery, the um, tamping down the energy of of protests. They will be amplifying it. They will be in the streets. Um, they will be um, they will be protesting and and using their platform to uh, to educate and agitate around this issue. And we've we've seen that a little bit already in New York, not from um, not from city council members, uh, but from the NYC DSA endorsed uh, candidates for state legislature. So I'm thinking mm. here of um, Jabari Brisport uh, and Ferris Front Forest, who led a march to the home or the alleged home of Lori Cumbo, who is sits on the city council as the majority leader um, and demanded outside of her home that she commit to defunding the police by three billion, which of course she did not. So I think that one of the real exciting things to look forward to, um, if we can get socialists in office on city council, is the role they can play in, in amplifying and um, supporting uh, direct action, mass mobilization, and um, labor action, mm. of course. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Wow, gosh. You know, so uh, we, because it was so um, interesting to pursue the current sort of situation with, with you, I kind of lost uh, track of time. Um, uh, I, I do want to... Uh, touch on um, sort of where you think, uh, you know, DSA and, you know, you can take that at any level you like, uh, nationally, you know, at, uh, you know, New York City, uh, however you think of it. Um, you know, you mentioned this really amazing, spontaneous sort of initial upsurge, uh, you know, and I've heard this from so many people now, just entire organizations just being conjured up. Um, uh, and um, uh, in in this context, what 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 is DSA's role in either consolidating or moving things forward? Uh, you know, helping strategize any any way you think about it. Like, what is our particular role in this? 
Yeah, this is a good question, especially um, given that so many organizations um, have either grown out of this moment of protest or are otherwise looking to address it. What does a socialist organization have to offer specifically? I think on a sort of a, a basic level, um, yeah, it's important that DSA is a is a durable organization. It's it's many of the established chapters have been active um, for for some time now and and will be into the future. And this is largely because um, DSA is an organization that um, tackles many issues at once. So if mm. energy subsides around one thing, it rises up around the other. Mm. But in this context, I think it's it's what I kind of want to say, I feel like, you know, DSA is, um, can be a, a, a home, a new home for people who have um, sort of been radicalized to this moment of protest and are looking for a place to continue to organize, given that we can't, you know, be out in the streets every single night for the rest of, of 2020. <laughs> I also think DSA has an important contribution to make as, um, as a socialist organization. Um, I mean, there are many, many responses. We're seeing many responses to this moment um, and to uh, the George Floyd uprisings. And of course, there are um, responses that we could, you know, there's sort of liberal responses of, of you know, demands for self-evaluation, self-education, reading groups, you know, diversity and equity task forces and corporations. And then there are um, responses that are perhaps, you know, I think, you know, the value of DSA's response is that it's able to offer an, an economic analysis and an economic response to the, to the crisis of policing. The history of policing, if we, you know, even glance at um, uh, a few moments in its sort of sordid history, the history of policing is really, you know, bound up with the protection and preservation of, of property rights and of the economic interests of, of capitalists. And so to truly um, dismantle policing in this country, um, and that understanding is, is required. Um, economic analysis is required. And I think that is really something that DSA is able to offer and able to organize around um, that maybe other organizations are are not. Um, so I think that that's really, I think those are two, two key areas of, of contribution I see DSA making, being a durable organization, a home for activists and organizers, and having an economic analysis and framework of what policing accomplishes and who it serves and what it's for. Mm, mm. Um, you know, I so I happen to agree completely there. Uh, and one of the things that, uh, you know, I've, I've talked with uh, uh, people about is, you know, when we say we are doing an economic analysis, you know, we are focusing on uh, labor and the class basis of all of this. Um, uh, you know, it, we we are doing it, I think, in a way that puts the, you know, the really white supremacist character of the, um, uh, you know, of, of policing and 
you know, even even more broadly at the center of it. But we do seem to be vulnerable to this sort of that as soon as we say, okay, we are doing the economic analysis, um, we we do seem to get this sort of um, uh, you know flack about uh, well, but you know you're doing class first or something like that. I mean, what, what do you think about that? Well, it's, it's a tough it's a tough question. Um, I. I am really wary of that type of criticism. Um, and I think it's, you know, we have to explain ourselves really well. I mean, the history of policing in this country is is certainly, it's 100% bound up with the maintenance and, and preservation of white supremacy. And, you know, because of the racialized character of classes in this country and this um, sort of class breakdown definitely has its origins in, in slavery, it's clear that the police are an institution that is, you know, implicitly charged with maintaining white supremacy. So, you know, when we see the police as enforcers of um, class relations, when we think of the police as um, an institution that is sort of charged with waging class warfare, of course, what's in the forefront of, you know, my mind as I sort of say that is that um, it is black people in this country who um, suffered disproportionately in the hands of this sort of at the hands of this sort of class stratified system, you know. And I also think it's the case that like you know, policing is a it's a racist institution, but also there is, and I don't want to lose sight of this, there is a lot of individual racist attitudes that um, that. Are prevalent within the culture of policing. Mm. Um, they say that, you know, it's not just a couple of bad apples, and that's definitely true. The institution of policing is a racist one. Um, but also, there are, you know, factors in policing, like the culture of police departments um, that are, um, are clearly violently racist mm. um, on a more individual level. And I think, you know, I don't want to go into conjecture here, but I think, you know, people who harbor racist sentiment that is certainly exacerbated by participating in police culture. It also might be the case that people are drawn to policing because they harbor racist sentiment. So I think it's, you know, it's really coming from, from all directions here. Um, I would certainly never lose sight of um, the police, policing's particular seeming interest in um, in exercising violent power um, against particularly black people in this country. Hmm. Yeah, you know, my, my response to the apples thing is always to say that, well, I'm sure there are a few good apples, you know, uh, but that's probably as far as it goes. And there's certainly, yeah, like you're saying, plenty of... Uh, People who might be drawn to the police, uh, you know, for the for the racism and and you know, I I think maybe even the attraction towards a certain kinds of vi- violence. I mean, it's legitimized. You these days you have access to all this weaponry, you know, uh, and uh, for people who are drawn to that, uh, you know, great. And it's a good city job, you know, in some places. Um, yeah, I think what what makes me really what I find sort of devastating is the fact that policing, I mean, if you divorce it, it from sort of the psychological toll it takes on people, it's one of the, you know, best jobs you can have in terms of pay, in terms of benefits. 
um, in terms of, you know, when you're able to leave and collect a pension and just, this is not neither here nor there, but just how awful is it that one of the sort of quote unquote best jobs you can get is, um, you know, enacting, uh, this sort of state sanctioned violence, um, in your, well, not in your own community, but in, in communities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, especially for people without college degrees, um, and, uh, you know, uh, and in New York City now, you know, I think it's a majority of uh, police officers are, are non-white. And so, uh, so in some ways, it's, it, yeah, exactly as you're saying, it's actually a place for people to have good employment in, in all the ways you, you mentioned. And yet employment of this especially sorry, sort of, I mean, I, you know, I'd have to call it an antisocial uh, kind. I mean, it's intrinsically directed uh, at, uh, at other people. Um, uh, so, but yeah, but that, but that is probably another, you know, as you were saying that people still in some parts of the city need to feel safe and, and to be able to call the cops. I also think this might be another basis for the, you know, pr there's probably a lot of people who have family members who have, uh, you know, police jobs or, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a big department. And uh, so there might be some other kind of loyalties there as well, you know, um, uh, that are hard to shake um, without saying, well, you could have all of those things if we had an economy that, you know, was able to provide this without you having to get a job that involves you beating other people up, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, it really shows um, just the, the amount that police officers can make, the type of benefits they are accorded. It really shows what type of work that our city uh, and state and at the national level that are valued um, in comparison to you know, work like teaching and work like being a nurse um, or home health aid um, that are valued nowhere near as highly. For me, this conversation laid out all the major challenges for the anti-police movement generally and for socialists in particular. While the protests have been spectacularly successful in publicizing the defund and abolition uh, alternatives to police reform, city budgets remain resistant. This is due not just to the strength of police unions, corrupt municipal politics, and so on, though those are probably the, the biggest factors. Uh, it's also because of enduring support for police in major cities, including in some poor non-white neighborhoods. The movement may have traveled farther and faster on the long road to defunding than people generally, and now needs to figure out how to bring everyone else along. Himes argues that labor organizing, as well as economic and class demands, will be critical to continued progress. To this, I would add political divisions among the police themselves, which the movement should consciously analyze and seek to intensify, rather than treating the police as an undifferentiated opponent. Finally, our conversation raised the enduring question for socialists in the U.S. regarding the balance among race and class issues. And, of course, even formulating the question in that way, as if these were two uh, separate issues, is problematic. This will be a central theme of the second season of the podcast, starting in about two weeks, 
along with tensions among socialists regarding the November election and also how the pandemic is playing out in other countries. My first round of guests include Alyssa De La Rosa and David Roddy on the history of people of color in DSA from its very beginning, Leo Panich on the significance of the U.S. presidential election, and Sam Gindin on economic planning. Join us in thinking aloud about how our day-to-day work during Corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it. <laughs>